Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Third Squad is a podcast about war. All episodes contain strong language and graphic descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. I think we live in hell. I think this is hell. And our test through hell to make it to heaven. And I guess Josh had already proved that he's like a great individual, Dutcher, and Nick. And he's like, all right, you guys could come up. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 11. I think this is hell. So where are we going to go now? Uh, You want to cruise around? Yeah, I want to see the spots. I want to see the landmarks of your life. It's been a long and winding road from Camp Pendleton, right smack on the Pacific coast, to Atlantic City, New Jersey. More than 8,000 miles, in fact, plus a trip to Alaska. Now Tommy and I are out cruising down Atlantic Avenue on a breezy and blue-skied Easter Sunday with 3rd Squad veteran Jeffrey Lopez. Yeah, we're still a veteran. This is the border of veteran AC right here. He's got on shorts and an anime t-shirt with slip-on sandals and socks. He's smaller than I remember, with a scruffy beard and sleepy eyes. We drive under the arched walkway of the Tropicana Casino and into a block that looks like it stumbled into broad daylight after a hard night of drinking. Delilah's Den, the most beautiful showgirls. Yeah, I had my phase of strip clubs too. Before or after Afghanistan? Um, Before and after. Lopez was born here, the son of a refugee from El Salvador. And he grew up with his four brothers in Ventnor City, just down the beach from the casinos and the boardwalk of old Atlantic City. For New Yorkers and Philadelphians, Atlantic City is a weekend getaway for gambling and shopping. And often enough, it's a punchline. This is where the Trump Plaza, the former president's spectacular failure of a casino, got demolished a little over a month ago with 3,000 sticks of TNT, leaving a literal money pit behind. For Lopez, though, this place is home, and Atlantic Avenue is memory lane. So I used to chill at Chelsea, have a few drinks, then walk right over to Tribe and hit up the slot machines. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I used to love slots. The last couple of decades have not been kind to Atlantic City. The Great Recession hit the casino industry so hard that the state actually had to take over the city's finances. 
Then there was Hurricane Sandy in 2012, which made landfall in Atlantic City and damaged thousands of homes before rampaging up the coast. And now there's COVID, which has cost about one in three of the area's leisure and hospitality workers their jobs. To put it mildly, the boardwalk empire is on the rocks. But Lopez exudes maximum chill. So this is like the main strip. Um, when we were younger, we used to come here to get like our haircuts, buy all our gear. But now a lot of the stores are closed down, and there's a lot of drug selling and stuff. The dudes who hang on the corners now are not the kind of people you mess with. But Lopez says there was a time when he and his brothers and their crew from the neighborhood owned this strip. And their favorite after-school activity was going out looking for trouble. So where did the fights happen? Where were the the brawls? Um, We've had some here, up here by the barbershop, on Bradley Ave, on Dover Ave, on the boardwalk, wherever there was, like, bus stops. We'll just meet people there. Like, we'll, we won't be in school, and we'll get a call from someone, like, I'm on the bus with these people. Come meet us here, and we'll be at the bus stop waiting for them to get off. What the fuck? <laughs> you guys coordinated by cell phone? Yeah. We had, like, the, the brick Nokias back then. Oh, yeah. Um, the yeah. next tells. Next tell with the bloop. Yeah, the chirp. Bloop. Lopez says the fights weren't gang-related. It was more like his version of Taylor Moody's metal and moshing, a good way to work off surplus teenage testosterone. But it wasn't harmless. Were you picking fights with people who didn't want anything to do with it, or were you always picking fights with people who were looking for it? Uh, I used to be a little, like, bully, like an asshole to people. I used to talk shit to everybody, make them feel bad about themselves. But now I'm like the complete opposite. How do you think that happened? How do you think that transformation happened? I don't even know. Do you think it had anything to do with coming back from the Marines? Maybe. Maybe being more grateful for life. Like I shouldn't live miserable or making others miserable. Instead, bring like love to the table. Lopez has a very good reason to be grateful for life. He was nearly killed in the June 12, 2011 mass casualty in Sangin, and he came home with more than a changed attitude. This is like a Purple Heart Memorial up here coming up. There it is right there, Purple Heart Combat Wounded, dedicated to all men and women wounded in all our wars. Did you used to see that when you were a kid? Uh, Yeah, but I never knew what Purple Heart meant. And now? Now it means uh, a little more. Because you're one of the people. Uh, You have that medal. We turn into a narrow street with houses packed close together on both sides and a view of the bay at the end of the block. We pull up in front of a white two-story with a wide porch that belongs to Lopez's mom, Rosibel, who we're going to meet later. Lopez has lived in this house all of his life, aside from a couple of semesters at college and his five years in the Corps. He shows us around to the backyard, which is cluttered with his kids' toys, and where there's a shed tucked up against the fence. We duck inside. This is your little studio here? Yeah, my little getaway spot. Lopez's older brother, Francisco, built this hangout spot in high school as a refuge from the chaos inside the house, home to five brothers, Lopez's mom and stepdad, and their grandmother. Lopez inherited the studio when he moved back here after the Marine Corps. 
He's got a deluxe computer set up and a futon couch covered by a blanket with cartoon faces of hip-hop legends. And there's a window into a soundproof booth with a microphone where he records the raps he writes. Like this one, inspired by his time in Sangin. Strands of LEDs give the place a soothing, subterranean glow. It's so comfortable down here, I'm tempted to take a nap. But we got some talking to do. So Lopez plops into his swivel chair, and I take a seat on the couch. This is crazy, but you actually look younger. Really? Yeah. I don't know if it's because you have hair, maybe. Lopez has a mop of dark curls now. But back in Sangin, he wore his hair shaved almost to the skin. Just introduce yourself. My name is Jeffrey Lopez. I'm 22 years old from Venice City, New Jersey. Okay, great. When I met him in July 2011, he still had pockmarks on his deeply tanned face from the shrapnel he took on June 12th, including a nickel-sized scab close to the tip of his nose. He was pretty mellow back then, too. If you could describe Sangin to some of your friends back home who've never been here, have no idea what it's like over here, what would you tell them? Sangin's crazy. I mean, it looks like a beautiful country, but as far as stepping out the wire with all your gear, it's shitty. I get cursed, right? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, that's, that's about it. I can't really explain it somewhere you don't want to be. Some of the guys in third squad had joined the Marines to get as far away from where they grew up as possible. But Lopez was homesick for his mom's busy house, and he'd eaten enough MREs to last a lifetime. I miss being around my family, you know, just sitting there talking to them. I miss McDonald's, Applebee's, all-you-can-eat crabs at, like, the Bayside Buffet. Lopez had gotten some college under his belt before he enlisted, and he'd also been stationed in Spain for seven months, where he came up with big dreams for his post-Marine Corps life. When I go back to college, I'll probably stay studying business, probably take some, like, cooking classes. I already know how to cook, but so I could open up my restaurant one day. Is that what you want to do? Yeah, out in Spain. In Spain? Yeah. I still don't have a name for it, but probably something with my last name, Lopez, Rez, I don't know. You think you can hang with the Spanish on their own cuisine? Yeah, I know I could. Okay. Lopez Restaurant never made the leap from dream to reality. But he and his mom do have a side biz selling her Salvadoran pupusas. And Lopez did find full-time work in the restaurant industry as a waiter at the Golden Nugget Casino, where his mom and stepdad also work. Lopez also has a part-time gig at the Wawa convenience store down the street. Like some of his favorite rappers, he's all about the hustle. Yeah, I work a lot. Gotta work when you're poor. Do you consider yourself poor? Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to just get paid for music and do that. But, you know, my kids got to eat, so I'm going to have to go bust out this 9 to 5 real quick. Lopez has two kids, a 10-year-old son named Jax, who was born while he was in Sangin, and a 2-year-old daughter named Jace. They're growing up in the very same house their dad came home to as a newborn, where hustle was built into the family foundation. We were probably one of the few Hispanic families in this neighborhood at the time that had their own house. So, you know, it was my mother's house. Lopez's mom and dad got divorced when he was a little kid. Rosibel eventually started dating a man named Nate. They met at the at the buffet, the Bayside Buffet, and they got married quick after. They're just hard workers, always been there for us. Seeing them 
like get us ready for school and then they'll go to work and won't come back till the night. My grandma was watching us, so you can see that they had so much dedication to grind to make sure their their kids were good. In high school, Rosibel's house became the rally point for Lopez and his brother's huge group of friends. We'd get the cops called on us around here all the time, just because, like, the crowd we would hang with, it was mostly, like, Hispanics and Blacks. So people would call the cops on your parents and on your family? Uh, on us, like, just for hanging out. Our music too loud. But it changed now, and all, all the labor, neighbors love me now. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they forgot about everything. So when you got out of the Marine Corps and came back, was it like slipping into a comfortable pair of old shoes? You just yeah, fit right, right back, back at in? It, yeah. Music is Lopez's lifelong passion. He started keeping a notebook of poems and lyrics in high school. I remember the, the first song I wrote... Because living life is hard, depending where you're coming from, especially when you're a mom with a couple sons and a couple jobs. But we make it through at another part and let stepdad come too. It's just two of us, but he wants another son and another one that makes four of us. Growing up in the struggle, broke as fuck. Might be different, but we still know what's love. Give each other pounds and hugs, throw it up. If you knew what it was, show us love, even though there's no clue up above. And don't realize what's happening, cause your fan make more money than the average man. But we bummy with our payless Tim's hatred grin. Can't trust most of these, maybe friends. Love for y'all is what made me sin so i don't regret shit god that made me did wow wow (laughs) that was cool yeah that That was was like the first thing i ever wrote and it's funny because i remember that but anything new that i write down is hard to memorize like i have bad memory now what do you think happened to your memory probably all the explosions i can remember stuff like from before but anything like from that and like till now it's kind of like a bit it could be the smoking too Smoke a lot. How much do you smoke? Like two grams a day, maybe. Lopez says the weed helps with his war-related anxiety and PTSD symptoms. But he says he smoked even more before he joined the military. So I would get off of work, make like 50 bucks in tips, and go buy like an eighth of weed. Smoke it all? Probably, yeah, mostly. Because there was a few of us. We'd get bottles, weed, go to sleep, do it again the next day. The ganja fest ended when Lopez had to get clean for boot camp. In Sangin, he snuck a few hits of hashish with the Afghan National Army soldiers at PB Fires, but his pot-smoking career didn't begin again in earnest until he got out of the Corps. What do you remember about the first time you got high after five years? Do you remember um, having a low tolerance or anything? It was a way different high from what I remember in high school. It was more like kind of being stuck. When I was in high school, it was just like giggles and munchies and stuff you see in movies. But then all the weed now is just completely different. It's just a lot more potent. I mean, I could be stuck in this chair all day. I'll be productive in this chair. Like, I'll be writing something. It doesn't, like, stop me from doing anything. Like, I, I go to work, smoke a blunt, and still perform the same way without it. If I smoked even 10% of a blunt, you'd have to take me to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have a psychotic break. Uh, you'll you'd be have, all right. You just got to take some deep breaths. No, you'd have to put me in a straitjacket. <laughs> I've always remembered that Lopez was one of the only guys in Third Squad who seemed to have a clear motive for joining the military. And even though he grew up just down the coast from New York City, it had nothing to do with September 11th. One of our 
childhood friends he got killed in in Iraq. So I felt like, oh, and I, now I have to go and do something about it. That's that was my mindset as a young mindset. Then I asked my mother to like sign the papers for me, but she wouldn't let me. I was seventeen. So then I had to wait like a, another year, and then finally once I was eighteen, then I joined. What was your friend's name? Uh, he was Eric. Eric Palacios. And that made you feel like you had to join. Yeah. It was more like, oh, I got to go avenge or something like that. And you see stuff in movies, like somebody's brother gets beat up. It's like, all right, we got to go get him now. It's kind of like that. When you were growing up, did a lot of people go and join the military? A lot of people did. Uh, my brother did. My younger brother. I had one of my cousins, all Marines. Most of our friends, a lot of them are veterans. Lopez was attracted to the military for reasons beyond the desire to avenge the death of Eric Palacios in Iraq. In high school, he and a bunch of his friends did junior ROTC. It's kind of like Boy Scouts, but you wear military uniforms and learn basic stuff like how to march and how to identify the enlisted and officer ranks. The chief that was in charge of us, he was real cool. Looking at his stack, everything he had, that could have been part of it. Tell people what a stack is. What do you mean? Oh, a stack is all your ribbons or awards from the military. The stack of ribbons and things that go on the chest yeah, of the uniform. Right uniform. All those colorful ribbons. Yeah, the cool looking stuff. So that was impressive to you when you were a high school kid? Yeah, all that shiny stuff. I didn't know what it <laughs> meant. Lopez was only 17 when he first attempted to join the military. But his mom, Rosibel, absolutely refused to sign the papers for him. So Lopez went off to college instead, about two and a half hours away near the Poconos. But his heart wasn't in it. He came home at the end of the school year and never went back. He tried community college too, but he didn't like that either. By then, Lopez was 18. And against his mother's wishes, he made a rash decision. I was driving down Ventnor Ave. And I was just thinking, like, you know, school wasn't for me. I knew it from the beginning. I hate, always hated school. I was like, I'm tired of the school. I was like, you know what? It's time to finally go. And I just drove straight there. I was on a flight a few weeks after, like a month later. Just like his former squad leader, Jarek Fry, Lopez had had an epiphany that carried him straight to a Marine Corps recruiting office. This one was nestled in a strip mall in a nearby town. What did you say to the recruiter? Just want to join. Like, what are my options? And he took me through everything. I think I did some pull-ups, like, the first day I was there. Probably had only did, like, two or something, you know. Uh, did the paperwork. I went on a run with him. And next thing I know, I was on the yellow footprints. Now, when I tell you to, you're going to get all your crap. Get up and get off my bus. Get on my yellow footprints. Four recruits side by side. Do you understand? The yellow footprints are a hallmark of Marine Corps boot camp. Recruits fresh off the bus have to stand on the footprints and shuffle through processing stations, getting screamed at by drill instructors in flat-brimmed campaign hats the whole time. Get off my bus! Lopez hit the yellow footprints at Paris Island, South Carolina in April 2008. Did you feel 
like joining the Marines was something that would make you more of a man at all? Did you did you ever feel anything like that? Did you feel like you wanted to be like a fighting man? Did did that re- part of the recruiting speak to you at all? No, I don't think so. No. I felt like I was a man before that. As a kid, I've always thought I was a man. It's just nonsense in a kid's head. I'm a man. I'm grown. It did make me mature a lot quicker. Lopez signed up to spend his first two years as part of the Marine Security Force Regiment, the group that Michael Dutcher also served in that protects critical U.S. assets around the world, like embassies and nuclear weapons. But Lopez says he didn't really know what he was getting into. When I went to the recruiting station, he told me that I would be like on the front line where it all went down, like uh, you'll be in the red zones, this and that. I was like, oh, that sounds so cool. So I was like, all right, put me in security forces then. And then I was in freaking Spain on vacation. So I was like, this is nothing that I asked for. So that was not what you thought you were signing up for? No, nah, the recruiter lied to me. <laughs> Asshole. Wait, hold on. A recruiter lied to you? Yeah, I never would expect that. Yeah. He was like, you're going to be in the shit. I was like, sign me up. But then what happened? Because eventually things changed and you were not in security yeah. forces anymore so yeah. what what happened at the security forces they asked us what unit we wanted to go with and me and some other guys we were like oh which unit deploys like the quickest and they're like one five they're like send us there then lopez and some marine buddies who were also going to one five took a road trip from jersey out to california they arrived at camp pendleton in october 2010 i was just ready i just wanted to go already you know and what did you want to do? What were you What were you ready to do? What do you think? I wanted to fight, shoot stuff, but not just stuff. No, shoot bad guys, shoot their stuff, their hearts and stuff. Shoot their hearts, their hearts and stuff. Why do you think you were so eager to go shoot people? You know, they're labeled these terrorists, so want to go fight them. They're bad guys. You know, doing bad stuff. But what what was the bad stuff that they were doing? In your mind at the time, what did you think that they were doing that made you want to go shoot them personally? Shooting at us. That's the bad stuff. I didn't know anything else. I didn't know why we were there. I didn't know what they were defending, um, their reason for fighting. I just wanted to fight, go to war. Just what I've been training to do. Six months after Lopez got to Camp Pendleton, his wish came true. He deployed to Sangin, where he got to shoot at people and get shot at. But for the mother, whose wishes he denied, it was seven months of nonstop torment. We'll be back after the break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This has red chili, green pepper, onion, garlic, and lots of celery. It goes in here with the cheese, which is hot. Lopez told me about his mom's legendary pupusas when I called to set up this visit months ago. And now I'm lucky enough to see the magic unfold right in her kitchen. Rosabelle is not only preparing her native El Salvador's national dish, she's also kind enough to teach me how to make it. And this is rice and beans. We call it casamiento, which means marriage. She's got the slaw all ready, and now we're folding pureed pork shoulder, refried beans, and cheese into the pupusa dough. Manos en la masa. We used to sell these during the pandemic when we weren't working. There were days when we sold a thousand dollars worth of pupusas. Jeffrey's very good at selling. Rosibel is a machine. She's flipping pupusas and stuffing new ones at the same time, shuttling them into the dining room as soon as they come off the griddle. She's got a big family to feed. There's her husband, Nate, plus two of Lopez's younger brothers who live at home. Then Lopez, his girlfriend, and his two kids from his previous relationship. Some parents dream of the day their kids will fly the nest. But Rosibel loves having as many of her kids as possible under one roof, and her grandkids, too. <laughs> they say children are loved, but grandchildren are adored. If they misbehave, you just give them back to their dad. We have had eight children in this house. Some live downstairs, others upstairs. They're cousins, but they love each other like siblings. Rosibel's pupusas are out of this world, riquísimas. When she has some time to chat, we go out to Lopez's studio where it's quiet. I want to know what kind of kid Jeffrey was and what it was like to send him off to war. But first, I want to hear about her journey to the United States. I came from El Salvador illegally. It took about 15 days to get here. We traveled by bus from El Salvador to Guatemala and on to Mexico. Then we got a plane to Tijuana. From there, we went to a hotel where we stayed for four days. Then we arrived in the U.S. 
It was 1988. Rosibel carried her infant son Francisco with her on the trip, and she was pregnant with another boy who she would name Jeffrey. She remembers taking a long bus ride from Tijuana, then wading across a river somewhere to get into the United States, and briefly passing through Houston on her way to Atlantic City, where her mother and brothers were waiting for her. They'd saved up to pay for her to come and join them, and it wasn't just because they missed her. While America argues about President Reagan's plan to send military aid to El Salvador, terrorist killing there continues to take a daily toll of lives. At the time, El Salvador was being torn apart by a vicious civil war that pitted leftist guerrillas against the military government, whose forces were funded, trained, and armed by the United States. That President Reagan feels the El Salvador situation is at a critical stage, and he is bound to take all necessary measures to ensure the troubled government prevails. It was part of the same Cold War strategy that compelled the U.S. to arm the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviets. But the history of U.S. involvement in El Salvador goes back much farther than the Cold War. Ever since the turn of the 20th century, the U.S. had been propping up right-wing governments in Central America and the Caribbean in order to protect corporate interests in the agricultural sector, where exploitation was the business model. The autocratic rulers of these so-called banana republics were typically elites with European heritage ruling over impoverished indigenous and mixed-race communities. They met demands for reform from peasants and laborers with brutal repression. And when rebels took up arms against their repressive governments under the banner of Marxism in the second half of the 20th century, the U.S. threw its weight behind the effort to crush the uprisings, sending billions in aid, along with weapons, military advisors, special forces, air support, and CIA operatives. Central America's problems do directly affect the security and the well-being of our own people. By the 1980s, the region was engulfed in violence. The U.S. and its Central American government proxies called it counterinsurgency. But to many people on the ground, like Rosibel, it felt like state terror. Some 70,000 civilians were killed in El Salvador between 1979 and 1992. According to an official truth commission convened at the end of the war, an estimated 85% of the victims were murdered by government forces and paramilitary death squads. More than a million people out of a population of just over 5 million fled the country. Rosibel was one of them. And there's no telling what might have happened if she'd stayed. For most Americans, war is something that happens far away. But for Rosie Bell, it was life. And it wasn't something she'd ever dream of chasing. It was something real. We would always hear the fighting between the guerrillas and the soldiers. Sometimes it was really close. We lived near a river where there were often clashes. You could hear everything, the bullets and the bombs that people appeared. They said they killed 14 people. There are up to 14 dead on that side. Dead people every day. A couple of years after Rosibel got to the United States, she was able to get protected status through a special program for refugees from the El Salvador crisis. And after marrying Nate, who's from Puerto Rico, she was able to get her U.S. citizenship. Her story has a mostly happy outcome, but the region she fled is still plagued by violence. 
still forcing people into flight. This latest caravan passing through Mexico, now numbering in the thousands. At least 700,000 Central American migrants made the dangerous journey to the southern border of the United States in 2021, fleeing poverty, chronic drought, and a new wave of violence that has its origins in yet another one of America's forever wars, the war on drugs. Since the 1990s, the U.S. has deported tens of thousands of gang members to El Salvador, where they've taken root in the ruins left by the Civil War and grown their ranks to become a seemingly unstoppable force of destruction. The same law of unintended consequences that helped turn Afghanistan into an opium empire run by warlords has turned El Salvador into one of the most dangerous countries in the world. At its worst point, the country's homicide rate spiked to about one murder per every thousand citizens. Rosibel fled her home because she wanted her children to grow up in a place with no death squads or bodies in the streets. She could never have known that she would also be saving them from the deadly aftershocks of the war on drugs. Not long after Rosibel arrived in New Jersey, she gave birth to her second son, Jeffrey. He was a very, very good boy, very handsome, very intelligent. He always went to school and always got good grades. He was very, very affectionate. It was in Lopez's teenage years that he discovered his love of fighting. He told me he and his crew went out looking for trouble, but his mom doesn't remember it like that. He was a little mischievous, but he was good. Just he played around. I'm sure they fought, but it wasn't because he was a bully. They came looking for him. One time about 30 people showed up right here in front of the house wanting to jump him. Rosibel might have had rose-colored lenses about Lopez's fighting problem, which actually got him kicked out of high school. But she didn't suffer any illusions about the seriousness of real fighting, the kind that involves uniforms, guns, and killing. She'd worked hard to build a life for her family in peace, and she aimed to keep it that way. So when Lopez came to ask for her permission to join the Marines at 17, she said no. She actually said she'd sooner break his bones than allow him to join the military. She wanted him to get an education and a good job. And for a while, it seemed like he was on that path. But then he dropped out of school and told me, I'm joining the Marines, and he left. And that's when the torture started for me. I knew he was going to go to war, and that's why I didn't support him joining. I was angry, especially with whoever recruited him. I didn't even want to hear from him. I've always thought that wars don't lead to anything. I don't know why they fight. Because it was just the same in El Salvador. We were at war there, and I really don't know what it achieved. It's governments that send these boys off to war to get killed or to be damaged psychologically. Rosibel was correct in her prediction that Lopez would end up going to war. But she could never have guessed that he'd get sent to the most violent place in all of Afghanistan. He goes away and I'm left wondering what's going to happen to him. 
I begged God to protect him. For me, every minute that he was over there felt like torture because I was always waiting to receive bad news. I imagined that he was suffering, that maybe he was starving and cold. I imagined everything because everyone knows that in war there are times when people do not even have enough to eat because they are on the battlefield and maybe they haven't been able to get food to them out there. Just like Brian Shearer's parents described around the fire pit in Rapid City, Rosibel would spend Lopez's entire deployment waiting on pins and needles for any news. I was always waiting by the phone shouting, Jeffrey, running around, always waiting for him to call. I used to tell my family, be ready for his phone call, I'm going to work. But it wasn't that easy for him to call us. When Lopez did call, he was sparing with the details about what he was going through in Sangin. Consumed by worry over all the unknowns, Rosibel turned to her faith for comfort. I'm not one of those religious people who walks into the church beating her chest, but I do believe in our Father. I know that He exists and that whatever we ask from our heart, He's there to listen to us. She prayed for her son constantly. All the time. I prayed to God to take care of him, to take care of his friends, to bring him home to me alive. In October 2011, Rosibel flew out to California so she could be there at Camp Pendleton when Lopez and the rest of the 1-5 survivors got home from Sangin. It was the happiest day of my life. When I saw my son, when I saw him, I said, oh my God, it's him, it's Jeffrey. I ran to him like a crazy person. It was the happiest moment of my life to see my son again and to know that he was okay. It's been almost 10 years since that joyous reunion. And even after all this time, Rosibel still catches herself sometimes feeling the same anxiety she felt while he was away. Whenever I think about it, it's like reliving it all over again. You feel that thing in your stomach like butterflies, but I thank God that I have him right here. I don't want him to ever leave. I tell him that he has to stay with me until I'm old. I don't want to let him fly, but I know he has to someday. I have to accept that. Lopez still hasn't shared much about the war with his mom. He never told me about things that happened over there. He had quite a few scars on his face, and I never noticed because he hid it. Until one day, I saw a photo by accident, and then I realized it. I thank God that my son is here. The photo of Lopez that Rosibel saw was from after the June 12th attacks. His scars have completely vanished now. And while Rosibel worries that her son may have invisible wounds, she thinks he's managing everything well enough. And as much as Lopez likes to think of himself as a fighter, he's always been so much more to her. Jeffrey has always been a boy with a good heart. He's generous with his friends. Whoever is his friend is his true friend. He shows you who he really is. He's not hypocrite, not fake at all. And his family is really important to him. He's really sweet. What more can I say? And yes, he smokes weed. 
I can't stand that anymore. I want to take it away from him, but I can't. Lopez says the weed helps him deal with his emotions, but Rosibel's not so sure. She wishes he'd lay off a bit. As far as she's concerned, it's family that keeps Lopez grounded. And as much as he loves his blunts, I'm sure he'd agree. I think it's really good to have a strong family bond. We all have to be there for each other. And he's like that. He's always there for me. He's always there for everyone. We're a pretty tight family. Lopez may not have told his mom much about his time in Sangin. But Rosibel didn't need to have the details to know that her son had survived something horrific. We'll be back after the break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Three years after defying his mother's wishes by joining the Marines, Lopez deployed to Sangin. The fighting would be intense, and he'd get some ribbons for his stack, just like the JROTC chief he looked up to in high school. But there wouldn't be any vengeance for his childhood friend. Eric Palacios got killed in Iraq, and no one from Afghanistan had anything to do with that. By the time I got to Sangin, Lopez had a new target for his vengeance, the Taliban. Here we are at patrol base fires in July 2011. How do you rate them in terms of, of a fighting force? Pussies. They fight like fake-ass gangs back in the States, like planting IEDs, fucking shooting at us, going where we can't see them. 
just hide behind stuff. And if they were to step up, try to fight us like we fight them, they wouldn't stand a chance, so. And what's it like day to day going up against that IED threat? I mean, this invisible enemy. It sucks, but there's no other way around it. I mean, we gotta find them, we gotta get rid of them. So we're out here just trying to do that. Lopez had grown up fighting his opponents face to face according to an unwritten code of teenage honor. But the Taliban weren't trying to win a neighborhood street brawl. If they followed any rules at all, they were the ancient tenets of guerrilla warfare, like this one from the 6th century BC Chinese philosopher Sun Tzu. Know when to fight and when not to fight. Avoid what is strong and strike at what is weak. Know how to deceive the enemy. Appear weak when you're strong and strong when you're weak. Convincing your enemy that you're a bunch of cowards while sneaking out at night to plant IEDs is classic deception. And when those IEDs found their targets, the Taliban were nowhere to be seen. Like on June 12, 2011, when those IEDs found Lopez and his squad. You mentioned earlier that you said something like that your memory doesn't work that well anymore and you think that it's because of the explosions. Yeah. So tell me about the first explosion that you were um, close to. If you can. That was the one that McDaniels stepped on. I was right behind him, a few yards behind him. Before he got killed on June 12th, Joshua McDaniels was Third Squad's combat engineer, specially trained on the metal detector and responsible for all the squad's sweeping. Lopez usually walked behind McDaniels serving as his eyes and ears while McDaniels focused on the ground. They talked a lot on patrol and became good friends. He always seemed happy. He didn't, like, take anybody's shit. Like, he, he's always straightforward with everything. We would sit down in, like, in the weed fields and just, he just clown around. Always smoking his uh, Marlboro or had his dip in. Before him, I used to hate Marlboros. Then I would smoke some with him. Lopez was the closest person to McDaniels when he stepped on the IED. And seconds after the explosion, he was the first person to arrive at his side. Screaming, uh, yelling in pain. I got up there, he was missing his legs. Everything was out. And what were you going to do? What was it, What was on your mind in terms of what you needed to do in that moment? I couldn't do anything. I was like in shock until that next explosion. Then I like snapped back into reality. But by the time I already got back to it, Doc was already on McDaniels performing. And I was talking to him, trying to keep him calm while Doc was working on him. Lopez cradled McDaniels' head in his hands while Doc Forrett worked on him. He tried to comfort his friend as his life drained away, but there was really nothing else he could do. McDaniels died on the medevac helicopter minutes later. Lopez also got blown up that day. He got hit by the IED that killed McDaniels and the one that tore off Cody Elliott's leg. Along with the shrapnel injuries to his face, he suffered a serious TBI, which meant he got pulled from the patrol rotation for 10 days to recover. 
When Lopez got back into the mix, he picked up a new job, sweeping. He told me about it back in Sangin. Uh, lately, I've been sweeping. That's been my job. And when we first got here, it wasn't as bad. But now that all the, the IED threads getting like a lot heavier, it's kind of starting to suck each day. Like going out, like damn, I gotta sweep again. But I mean, I'd rather it be me than anybody else. So I'm definitely quick to let everybody know, hey, I'll do it. Why are you quick to do it? Why would you rather it be you? Because, I mean, I, I've lived, I, I've enjoyed my life, and if I die, shit, I, I'm in a more peaceful place than around all this shit, so I don't really care. Lopez was 22 years old. He had a family at home that surrounded him with love. And by the time I met him, he also had a family of his own. He'd married his high school girlfriend a few months before he left for Sangin, and she'd given birth to their first child while he was deployed, a baby boy who Lopez had never even met. Lopez had everything to live for, and yet he often volunteered for the job that had just gotten his friend McDaniels killed. And you found some IEDs. Yeah, I found a few. I remember I kicked one. What? Yeah, yeah I kicked one because I was sweeping and I kept getting a hit, and I couldn't find anything. So I was just I sat there for like five minutes trying to look for something. I couldn't find anything. So then I just like fucking start kicking around. And finally, just I hit something. I see some like tape around it, and I was like, "Shit!" So then we all backed up, and they came, and I think they said it was like five or ten pounds. Um, it, was, it sounded like a big explosion. So they came and did a controlled debt. Yeah. So what did that feel like for you to know that you had found one of these IEDs that had been? causing so much damage to your platoon. It was, uh, it was good because it was on a path that we always take. We've always taken that same. But then that day it just happened to be an IED there. Were you scared to do this job? Were you worried about it? No, not so much. How is that possible? I, it's hard for me to understand how you could not be paranoid I, or anxious. I've never like feared much, like anything really. It's just like, like you know what you're getting yourself. You already me- mentally prepare yourself to, like, I've told myself, like, all right, this is the day that I die. So if I go out there and, worst case scenario, I die, I mentally prepare myself. Lopez's lack of fear sometimes edged into recklessness, like when he disobeyed that order to stay inside the patrol base when he was sidelined because of his TBI. I snuck out one time on the 15th when Galvin and them stepped on, when Yarbrough, they stepped on those IDs. They had nobody to sweep, so I just went out. June 15th was the third in the string of mass casualty incidents that I've referred to before as the June curse. Seven Marines were wounded. First Squad's Lance Corporal Eric Galvan lost both legs and his right arm. Sergeant Josh Yarborough also lost both legs and a finger. With so much chaos unfolding outside the walls of PB fires, Lopez couldn't stand to be stuck inside. He was worried about his friends. So he geared up, grabbed one of the metal detectors, and headed for the gate with everybody else. How do you sneak out? I, I, I picture the 
the Marines being a pretty tight organization that doesn't allow a lot of sneaking of any kind. So how did well, you? Well, when some explosions go off, everyone's just getting ready real quick, and you're just going out. Help somebody who's never been there understand why you would want to go out when you didn't have to. Like, like a lot of people would think. I think most people would think. If I could get out of something like that, I would. Yeah. So tell me what was going through your head. Well, I was pretty good at sweeping, so I felt like if I'm there in the front leading them, then everyone behind me is all right. So that's why I felt like I always had to sweep, even when when Dutcher was. They gave me that day off. The day was September fifteenth, two thousand eleven. Sergeant Jarek Fry, the squad leader, told him to stay put because the sweepers were getting exhausted and Lopez needed to rest. And I'm like, nah, I should go out sweeping. And I kind of like begged them. They're like, nah, you're staying. I was like, all right, I had no choice. Lay down. Next thing, I hear an explosion. Yeah, that was Dutcher. Lopez wasn't there on the scene to witness the frantic rush to stop Dutcher from bleeding to death. But he was there when everybody got back to the patrol base. So what did you guys usually do when somebody got killed? I guess everyone just get back to like their own thing. There's still stuff to, that has to be done. And then the next day, they would give us like steak and lobster. They're like, here, somebody died. Really? Yeah. Uh, that's the only time we've seen good food when something bad happened. Lopez doesn't know exactly how the surf and turf got to patrol base fires, but it had undoubtedly come down the same multi-billion dollar supply chain that ran all the way from the Pentagon to the farthest flung outposts of the Forever Wars, where troops like 3rd Squad lived in the dirt and ate UGRs and MREs. But somewhere along that chain, at an airbase in Helmand or maybe Kandahar, near the ammunition depots and the jet hangars, there were support troops and private contractors living in air-conditioned shipping containers who had flushing toilets and took showers every day. They were the long tail to the combat troops' tooth, and most of them never came close to the fighting. They ate made-to-order Mongolian stir-fry and ice cream in giant dining facilities, where there were also lobsters, which could be delivered at a moment's notice to Marines out in the boondocks who were shaken up by the death of their friend. Lopez ate his ration of the U.S. government's bounty after Dutcher died, but it didn't console him, and he was still shaken up when he got back to California a few weeks later, where he first began to process the nightmare he'd survived. Those images would replay, like, constantly replay in my head. I had no control over that. But it would get worse when I would drink. So when I first got back, I was drinking a lot. What were those images that were coming back? Just the missing limbs, the explosions, uh, the blood. And what would it be like when it would come back? What did, what did it feel like? What did it look like in your head? Was it it's, like on fast forward or was it like real it's time? It's like a sad moment. Like thinking about now, like I just see Josh there on the floor. And would that image come to you just out of nowhere or would it, could you kind of feel it coming on or did certain things trigger it or um, how did it? I guess the time of the year, like right now we, we'd be in Afghanistan. 
So I would think that like every year, like, oh shit, today I would be there. It sounds like that doesn't happen as much anymore or no when i was still in cali my friend introduced me to shrooms so i i went on a shroom trip and i would feel like i'm talking to like the the friends we love to their spirits i would feel like everything's gonna be all right you know they're good you're good one day we'll all meet up we'll all be good their spirits would say that in the trip i felt like i was talking to josh on that trip that specific trip did you see him no, I felt him. It was uh, in the backyard. And it got to the point that, like, I got scared because I thought he was, like, like really, I was like, oh, fuck, there's, like, a spirit there. So then I started, like, kind of, like, praying because it was just, like, like a ghost. And so then everything calmed down at that moment. It went from, like, the plants moving around to everything just calm, like nothing's there. Lopez tells me the feeling of calm stayed with him long after that shroom trip. Things got better, at least when he was awake. In his dreams, he was still fighting. It would be like D-Day wars, uh, stuff that I didn't even experience, you know, images. I dream, but I don't remember my dreams when um, I'm smoking. Like, And it's like, it's calm dreams, it's nothing. But if I go to sleep and like I don't smoke, then that's when I have those dreams. Lopez is a firm believer in the power of certain drugs to relieve his anxiety. But he's also tried other things, like yoga, meditation, and decalcifying his pineal, which apparently involves freeing up your third eye by cutting out sugar and fluoride, among other things. In the end, though, Lopez always comes back to weed. Do you think it would be hard if you didn't smoke weed all day? Yeah, that's crazy. What is? That without this, that... I would have to like rely on like cigarettes and liquor, or you could talk to somebody. I don't really talk like that. But, like when I hang out, hang out with everyone, they're mostly talking, and I'm just like listening, chilling. I throw in my few sentences when they ask me for my opinion. You never wanted to go see a psychologist or counselor or therapist no. or anything like that. How come? I just don't think I need to. And do you think it's mostly the I guess you would call it self-medication with the weed that keeps that, you straight, or what music, do you think? My kids. That's all I really need. Lopez's marriage broke up after he got back from Sangin, but he's got a serious girlfriend now who lives with him in Rosie Bell's house. They're expecting a child together, another grandbaby for Rosie Bell to adore. Lopez swears that the fighter is still inside him, but he's not looking for any fights these days. You could almost say he's retired, hung up the gloves. The old Lopez is as distant a memory as the yellow footprints at Paris Island. He says he's thankful for the friends he made in the Marines, but after all these years, he's come around to his mother's view of war. Was it worth it? Uh, guess not, it's definitely not worth it, not losing lives and uh, limbs being kind of messed up for the rest of your life. I think some wars are pointless. Like, I don't know what the reason for us being over there. Uh, Why do you think we were out there? That's a big question, Jeffrey. (laughs) How much time you got? Uh, I'm listening. Okay. 
We talk for a while about the history and the politics that led up to the Afghanistan surge, and about how the simple mission to capture or kill bin Laden and destroy al-Qaeda's camps in the months after 9-11 fell prey to catastrophic mission creep, and about how President George W. Bush's decision to pretty much abandon Afghanistan for Iraq in 2003 helped hasten the Taliban's resurgence. And then when Obama came in, he was talking to all these generals and military strategists and the Secretary of Defense, and they were saying, if we pull out of Afghanistan, the Taliban are going to take over. And that's going to be seen as a loss against an Islamist force. So we got to ramp up the fighting. And I think the most important question at that time should have been, even if we can defeat the Taliban, what, what do we actually win? Is America safer? If we're going to go send all these people over there to do all this killing and dying, what do we get out of it? There's more enemies. You were there. Did you see anything over there that you wanted? No. Did you see anybody over there who you thought you might run into and be afraid of here on the streets of Ventnor or Atlantic City? No. No. It's not hard for me to understand the cocktail of teenage emotions and desires that draws young men like Lopez to recruiting offices. And I have a pretty good idea of what they're looking to get from the military. I've been there. But what's America's excuse? Why was the country so eager to chase the war after 9-11? What was America looking for? The easiest answer is also the most cynical. The military-industrial complex saw a golden opportunity to make a killing. That may be true, but it's too simple, and it lets the rest of us off the hook. I think the answer is more elemental, and I think the responsibility for the damage caused in America's name since 9-11 touches almost all of us. The September 11th attacks shattered America's myth of invulnerability and unleashed an overwhelming will to violence among average people and the political class. We were humiliated by the sudden realization that others could hurt us just like we could hurt them. We were angry and afraid, and we were willing to do almost anything to make those feelings go away. Anything except take the time to think through our actions. In September 2001, when President Bush asked Congress for authorization to launch the war on terror, only one congressional representative voted against it. One. 420 House members and 98 senators voted to give Bush the money and the authority to take America headlong into a war against an idea. Bin Laden was a mass murderer and a monster, but he seemed to know his son Sue. He understood his enemy, and he laid the perfect trap, like a judo fighter who uses the weight and momentum of his opponent against him. By delivering a spectacular blow to America's most iconic symbols of power, bin Laden triggered a violent response out of all proportion to the actual threat. That's the whole point of terrorism. But the war on terror was not a mere overreaction to that single devastating act. It was part of a much bigger pattern 
a product of broken code deep in America's cultural DNA, a pathological faith in our capacity to solve complex problems with brute force, chronic overconfidence in our own military superiority, and a fatal tendency to underestimate the enemy. I'm pretty sure bin Laden understood all of that, too, just like Ho Chi Minh did in his day. Bin Laden financed al-Qaeda's planes operation on a shoestring budget of about $500,000, or half the cost of a single Tomahawk cruise missile. And it was successful beyond his wildest dreams. America lurched into an era of war that generated widespread instability throughout the Middle East and Central Asia. The presence of mostly Christian invaders in the Muslim world played into ancient narratives and fueled viral resistance to American power. As the years dragged on, America piled up trillions in war debt and thousands of dead and wounded. The wars cost America credibility abroad and sowed division at home. I don't know what we ever hoped to win, but what we've lost is staggering. What's most astonishing to me is that even after U.S. leaders had time to cool off and think about just how perfectly the Iraq and Afghanistan occupations were playing into bin Laden's plans, they still decided to double down with the Afghanistan surge. I think for me, the great tragedy of it all is that once you set that machine in motion, you can't really turn it off. And that's what happened as we set that machine in motion in Afghanistan in October 2001, and it took on a life of its own. It's easier to start a war than it is to finish one, Uh, and nobody wants to be the one who's blamed for losing it. Yeah, that pride. And I still wonder why we're not more pissed off about that. There needs to be, like, some type of, like, revolt. As long as those people, whoever they are, are in control, and, you know, keep paying us peasants... What, 30000 a year to serve for them? It's always going to be like that. But you say that you don't, you know, you have no regrets. You're not mad about it. I mean, you got to be pissed off about it. Like, your your brothers are gone. But I'm not going to let something like that just ruin my, my whole life. Like, I'm still going to not get past it because it's, it's, it's always going to be there, but I'm going to figure out how to move forward. So part of moving forward for you has been making music. Music, uh, making sure my kids are good, teaching them, them like the best I can to make sure they make wise decisions. Like my son's like, I'm going to be a Marine. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, no way I would let you. I'll, I'll break your bones before you go. Why? It's our minds aren't meant to take that much like hurt, that much damage. So to know my son like has to go like through what I go through. I wouldn't want that. Like several of the other Third Squad survivors and countless veterans of wars across time, Lopez has struggled with guilt over the deaths of his friends. For a long time, he blamed himself for not doing enough to save McDaniels. And he felt like he should have been the one sweeping on the day that Dutcher died. 
But over the years, he's slowly come to accept that none of it was his fault. What's written for us, like, that's our path. If it's meant to happen, like, you can't escape death. Like, when God calls for you, that's it. It could have been me if that was my day to go. And sometimes God just calls on you early. Where do you think God was in Afghanistan during the bad stuff? How do you factor your faith in God or your idea of God into what was happening over there? What happened to you and your friends? It's like testing us, kind of. So he's pushing us to see see how far we could be pushed until like we're like, I've had it with life. I think we live in hell. I think this is hell. And our test through hell to make it to heaven. And I guess Josh had already proved that he's like a great individual, Dutcher, and Nick. And he was like, all right. You guys could come up. So, but I, I didn't start thinking like that till like a few years ago. Yeah, it's never ending. Take your time. Yeah. Are probably the first few people in a in a while that see me cry. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I'd say there's about eight or nine people who've been the first people to see me cry in a long time over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I bet. So feels good though. God's not calling on me anytime soon. I think he wants to test me a little more. I feel like I'm stuck here for a while. This is a Chucky Beat production. Lopez may not like to talk about his private pain, but he's working through it in his own way with his music. It's all chaos, spray ARs, some pray raw and take it to the graveyard. We all pray, but don't see no good results. Society is sheep, feel like I'm the only wolf. I think it's time that we all unite every state, every race, whether black or your white, everything in between. Yeah, you know what I mean. We just out here meant to be kings and think it's time that we all unite every state every race whether black or your white everything in between yeah you know what i mean we just out here meant to be kings and queens the following morning we say goodbye to lopez in the driveway of rosibel's house after dozens of hours of conversations there are no more third squad survivors on the itinerary And I want to take a moment before we get back on the highway to let that sink in. So we drive a few blocks and park next to a bridge over a wide canal. While I'm standing there looking out on the water, a group of rowers comes gliding under the bridge in bright colored shells. They look like high school kids. Their oars dip under the surface, pulling them past vacant summer homes and empty docks. I take a deep breath and savor the quiet and the feeling of the salty air on my skin. Maybe Lopez is right. Maybe this is hell. But to me, it seems more like some kind of purgatory, where we're all just walking in circles, trying to get unstuck. 
For my entire life, America has been trapped in an endless cycle of wars with unclear objectives, often cloaked in secrecy and always fought in other people's countries. Sometimes America funds and arms proxies like the Afghan Mujahideen and the Salvadoran military to commit violence on our behalf. And sometimes we send our own to do the killing and dying. Young troops like Lopez and the Marines of Third Squad, who have little understanding of the big picture and no firm commitment to anything beyond their own survival, but who shoulder the bulk of the country's pain and moral injury in the aftermath. Young kids like me. I want nothing more than for this cycle to end, but I'm starting to lose hope that it ever will. It's hard to even know when or where the forever wars began, but I don't think they really started on 9-11. The War on Terror is only the latest chapter in a saga of U.S. imperialism that stretches back through Central America, Vietnam, the Philippines, the Indian Wars, and beyond. And I don't think that saga is over just because we've closed the door on Afghanistan. America still has ongoing counterterrorism missions in dozens of countries around the world, from Yemen and Syria to the Philippines, Somalia, and Mali. These endless wars since 9-11 have cost an estimated $8 trillion and have directly caused nearly 1 million deaths. Think what that money could have done for the living in Atlantic City or Deer River or any of the broke-down small towns and Rust Belt cities I've passed through over the past few weeks. And what did all that money and all that death buy? The U.S. did finally track down and kill bin Laden, but the wars have failed to accomplish the impossible objective laid out by President Bush before the U.S. Congress in September 2001. Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. According to the State Department's official list, there are more than five times as many Islamic terror organizations around the globe today as there were 20 years ago, when planes crashed into skyscrapers on a perfect blue sky day like this one, just over the horizon from where I'm standing right now. The ocean breeze sends ripples across the reflected sky. I watch the rowers glide silently out of sight. Their slick trails linger on the surface for a moment, then disappear into the chop. If there's one thing I've learned on this trip, and in all the years since I first came home from war, it's that you have to cherish these subtle and fleeting moments of peace. Because maybe that's all there will ever be. This journey isn't over yet. Several months ago, I wrote to Michael Dutcher's mother, Teresa, 
to ask if she'd be willing to talk to me about Michael's life and how losing him has affected her family. She was hesitant at first, but we talked on the phone and she eventually agreed. Now we're making our final approach to Asheville, North Carolina, where Teresa still lives in the house where she raised Michael. I've had a lot of time to think over these thousands of miles and hundreds of hours behind the wheel about what it'll be like to finally meet Teresa and about the gravity of what I'm asking of her. There's no doubt in my mind that this will be the most difficult conversation of all. Ten days. That's all he had left. And we told him, never volunteer. (laughs) No matter what you do, never volunteer. And what did he do? He volunteered. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an Heirloom Media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Cracked open a bottle, had a lot up on my mental. Depend on no one, not a body to express, so can't let go. All the memories we made in deserts, all our will and effort, like a slap to all our medals. Slap to all our brethren who Funding support for Third Squad comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. If you're interested in supporting our work with a financial contribution, please visit the donate page at thirdsquad.com, where you'll also find photographs from Sangin and from our road trip. Original music for Third Squad by Mondo Boys. Additional music in this episode by Jeffrey Lopez. Voiceover for Rosibel by Esperanza Escribano. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Benjamin Bush, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, Lena Ferguson, and Brown University's Costs of War Project. If you've got a minute, please leave us a rating in your preferred podcast app. It'll help other people find the show. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. Smoke hashish with Muhammad, look we had a thing in common Make a tighter bondage and step out for a reconnaissance Peace. No kind of sins, all kind of sins And when we see the enemy, ain't that about a bitch Love the static, come on, I'm a pro at this Some gave lives and most got prosthetics Damn. Combat fetish, redefine better and ain't much I won't do for my EGA emblem Salute. Ain't gonna lie, it was always fun times That ain't hazing at the barracks or at the front lines nah. Master Gus, bad, I was parking in the spot Want no consequences cause I wore that purple heart So much bullshit we were living on a daily Would I do it all again is a common thing they ask me though On the Adderall 16 catapult Versus anyone I'm kissed with the raspy flow I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.